0: Hi, welcome back to Fairfax Public Access Radio Fairfax. I am Robert Doc Barham, and this is my show, the Robert Doc Barham Show. Today, we are talking with Frank King, stand-up comedian and speaker, who uh, currently, how shall I say this, Frank specializes in speaking on the topic, which I think is uh, right now uh, crucial, and that is suicide
1: prevention. Correct. Right. And, and well, welcome back, Doc. Welcome back. I'm not your first. I'm not your first.
0: We <laughs> <laughs> have you on the show today and uh will you do me a favor since I am uh, perennially lazy, will you tell uh tell me and tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, like uh you are a professional stand-up comedian and a professional speaker, keynote speaker. Um how did you get into stand-up comedy originally? What What was
1: the genesis of your your uh, career? Fourth grade, Mrs. Dark, and her infinite wisdom. I am terribly nearsighted. The entire family is terribly nearsighted. I wrote a joke one time that we are descended from the people of M- the island of Myopia, <laughs> um, who which was conquered over and over because they never saw the enemy coming. And... Who's that? I... Uh, I had to wear glasses because I couldn't see the board. And we're talking 19 middle I was born in 56. This would have been 1964, 65. There were no fashion frames for men, just basically black Buddy Holly glasses, and then for women, cat-eye glasses. So being vain then and vain now, I hated my glasses, didn't want to wear them. But Ms. Dark knew that I had to wear them, so she thought she would uh, <clears throat> desensitize the entire class to me and my new glasses. So she got me to the front of the room and had me face away from the class, put my glasses on, turned back to the class, you know, to let everybody see them all at once, pull the bandaid off all at once. Well, I turned back to the class and she looked down and she said to me, see there, you look intelligent. And I looked up at her and said, yes, that would explain all the laughter. And she excused herself to go to the teacher's lounge at that moment. Years later, I asked, I bumped into her at the Winn-Dixon grocery store. And she said to me, Frank, you know why I went to the teacher's lounge immediately after that? I said, no, Ms. Dark, I have no idea. She said, because that was the funniest thing a child had ever said to me. And I was afraid I was going to laugh in your face and break your heart. So I ran down to the teacher's lounge and told everybody in the teacher's lounge, you're not going to believe what that, that little king boy said. So that was the beginning. When the, when the class laughed, I decided at that moment I was going to be a stand-up comedian when I grew up. And then in high school, I took three years of drama, never got any good parts, no speaking parts. I always remember the chorus. By my second semester senior year, I thought I see a pattern here. And I realized if I if I did stand-up, I could write, direct, produce, and star on my own little show every night. So the senior talent show, I did 10 or 12 minutes of stand-up comedy, first, first person ever to do stand-up comedy at that talent show. <laughs> and I won. And I told my mama, I'm gonna be a stand-up comedian. And she said, Well, you're going to college first. I don't care what you do after college. You can be a goat herder if you like, but you're gonna be a goat herder with a college degree. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill, I got a degree in political science and one in labor management relations. Graduated, been dating a woman all through high school, all through college, my high school, college sweetheart. We moved to San Diego and got married, big mistake. Uh, wonderful woman. We just had nothing in common, but you know what they say, opposites attract. She was pregnant. I was not And so the went to work in the insurance business, which was her dream for me because her dad had been in the insurance business, her grandfather insurance business. What
0: was your degree in Frank?
1: I had a degree in political science, a BA and a BS in um, what they called industrial relations, which is labor management relations. Double major. Yeah. Well, Um. My senior year, right before we started, <clears throat> right before I signed up for classes, my roommate said, what are you going to do with a poli sci degree? And I thought, double major. So industrial relations was the best major to double with poli sci because a lot of the classes, you know, there's a lot of um, crossover. So I took 18 hours core my last semester in college while everybody else was, was taking pass. Anyway, in San Diego, there's a a uh, branch of the comedy store, the one that's up on um, Hollywood Boulevard in L.A. And every time I drove by that place on Pearl and La Jolla, I felt a magnetic pull. So I did what I I suggest everybody do who wants to do stand-up comedy. I went twice to open mic night to see what the competition was like. And 75% of them sucked out loud. And I thought, you know, I'm that funny walking around. So the third time.
0: up like, for one second, Frank. Before you tell me about the third time, what was the what's what was the difference between your first visit to the comedy store? You were there as an audience member, correct?
1: <clears throat> Twice as an audience member,
0: and then the second time, what was the difference between your experience as an audience member who was thinking about becoming a comedian, wanting to become a comedian? And your second visit, was there a difference?
1: No, they seventy five percent of the comics because they're mostly the same. There are about thirty comics doing open mic night at, at, the, at the comic store in La Jolla. They would do open mic night, and they'd allow comics to go up one right after another until people stopped buying drinks, and then the show was over. So you, you tried to go on somewhere in the first twenty or so, but no, I just I just I watched. This is basically the same guys and gals do it twice. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at least that funny, if not funnier. Then your third time was the time where you went on stage? Yeah, I signed up, went on stage, and I did five minutes on moving from North Carolina to California. The only joke I remember is, having grown up in North Carolina, I'd never seen guacamole. Hell, I'd never even seen an avocado. So I'm at a cocktail party, and I pick up a chip and I'm headed for the bowl. And I look down and it's guacamole, you know, that green sort of goopy stuff. So I bring it to a screeching halt right above the bowl, and the um, hostess comes over and goes, Frank, I know you're from North Carolina. You probably don't know what that is. That's guacamole. It's good. And I said, and I quote, um, I bet it was the first time somebody ate it. (laughs) So I I had a pretty good set for my first, and I'm sure it's horrible by my standards today. But I remember being on stage, and this has only happened to me a couple times in my life, I thought, I'm home. And then I thought, my second thought was, I'm going to do this for a living. I have no idea how, but I'm going to do this for a living. So that was April 1st, 84. In the the fall of 85, I won the improvs, funniest person in San Diego contest. There were 24 of us, and one guy was a professional headliner, the other 23 of us were open micers. So I thought to myself, I don't have to beat anybody but the but the headliner.
0: You say twenty-three.
1: Oh, say again? You
0: say twenty-three?
1: Yeah, there are twenty-three open micers and one headliner in the contest. Oh, wow. and so I said to myself, I don't have to worry about the other twenty-two open micers. All I gotta do is beat the headliner. I can take the I can win this. And I did. I had a set of my life that night and uh, which pissed him off to no end. I called him the next day, you know, just to just as, you know, to be gentlemanly, and his answer, outgoing message on his answering machine was, hi, this is Rick Rockwell, apparently the second funniest person in San Diego. He was a little bitter. Um, He, by the way, was the guy that created the show, Who Wants to Marry a Millionaire? And he was the first contestant on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Just for a piece of trivia. Uh, Anyway, paid a thousand bucks, got a big, got got the front page of the current section of the San Diego Union. I turned that into a poster, poster-sized poster. Size poster. <clears throat> I rolled it up and put it in mailing tubes uh, and um, started sending that out to comedy clubs along with my credits. And Sandy None. What year was this? 85. 1985? Yep, right before the holidays, 85.
0: 1985, um, that's when you're, when you're just beginning to start and you want to go full-time. That really was before the you know computers were, were, the desktop computer was. Oh locked. yeah, well, this is before like the internet. So how did you? where did you get the uh, the database or list of all the comedy clubs? how did you find that out?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I have no idea. <laughs> oh, you know there used to be a magazine. Um, it was a newspaper, sort of uh, tabloid size newspaper. I can't just for laughs maybe. And I networked with other comics, and every major city had a comedy club. And then Sandy Depurna I sent one to Sandy Duperney, and she was booking 10 clubs. Yeah that's so, Virginia. I got booked as an MC, my mistake, because I was I was, MC, I was house MC at the improv in San Diego, So the co- comics I was comparing myself to were L.A. comics. So in, in that world, I was an MC. But I should have gone out as a middle because when I got on the road, I realized very quickly that I had more credits, more press, more good material than most middle acts and some headliners. I mean, there are headliners on the road closing with street jokes, you know, joke jokes. Two guys walking to a bar jokes. Really? Yeah. Closing with so you. I I, I it put put me a year behind basically. Um. And Tom McDeague said to me, a year or so in, working at place line in Columbia, South Carolina, man, you got to be a worse MC and a better comic. You're too good an MC. They're going to keep you there because it's hard to get a good MC. So, and he was right. So I, I, I worked my way up the middle. And then I discovered the slideshow. Um, I started putting the slideshow to work. I was working in Oklahoma City, at Jokers, trying to follow... Brad Reader, magician. I was was struggling to follow the magician. And they had a screen. Which slot were you in? I was the headline. You're headlining? Okay. And how many years in are you now? Uh, About two years in. And (laughs) one of my first headline gigs, I was having trouble following the magician. And so I broke out my carousel projector and a couple dozen slides because there was a screen on stage just by chance. Old carousel, chunk, chunk. And so I did my act, and I closed the slideshow, and it did very well. And the um, owner, manager of the club, Ted, I think his name was, came up to me and said, man, I don't want to tell you how to run your life, but you should do that slideshow every night. So I did. Who was that? Uh, Ted, the owner of um, Jokers. What Jokers? Oklahoma City. There were two at the time, Oklahoma City and Tulsa. Right. Right. And um, anyway, Ted was right. So I started doing a slideshow every night. <clears throat> and, and it was hard And then as a middle The slideshow was hard to follow I can remember more than one headliner coming in Seeing me setting up And going not that freaking slideshow uh, So I was middling and headlining Of course I was traveling with Wendy My lovely wife at the time And she just came along for the ride And Somewhere along the line Working with Steve Rizzo I think it was Des Moines Funny Bones and we've been on the road for a long time and no home, just post office box and answer service. We didn't have a downside.
0: Yeah, when you, I was, when you say that you've been on the road for a long time, you mean that you guys have literally been not, you know, out for a few weeks
1: and back home. Back, no, literally. on the road, nonstop, no home. Yeah. And Rizzo said, Hey man, how long have you guys been on the road? And I said, I think and I counted up. It was close to 2000 nights. He goes, man, that's what you should be leading with. I bet you can get some press that way. So what I started to do was, but but I would look down the calendar about three weeks and I would contact the newspaper, the Entertainment Driven Weekly, the talk radio stations, radio stations of the town we're going to, and I was getting all kinds of press. I mean, I I was on the cover of the entertainment section of some of these towns, cover of the Entertainment Driven Weekly doing radio, uh, on my own. The club owners had nothing to do with it. And they loved that because they didn't have to lift a finger. I remember going into the Funny Bone in Columbus, Ohio. On the first night, Dennis Miller's there. I'm opening up for Dennis Miller. And I'm dragging a camera crew behind me. Funny Bone in Columbus? Yep, dragging a camera crew behind me. And I can remember Dennis Miller going, who the hell is that? And uh, <laughs> I was getting more impressed as a middle than most headliners. And so that helped me get the headline everywhere. And we put a couple hundred thousand miles on the Toyota 4Runner. And Toyota had a a contest going. They wanted to have people doing commercials for them who had had at least 200,000 miles on a 4Runner. So every time I got a newspaper article, every time I got a TV story, I would send it to the advertising agency that handled the Toyota commercials. And then somewhere along the line, I called up the ad agency, asked to speak to whoever handled the Toyota account, and said to the guy, this is Frank King, I'm, and before I could finish, he goes, I know exactly who you are. I've got a stack of videotapes here with your name on. He said, look, we got a half dozen of these people in the mix. You're in the mix. We're going to do three commercials, so you got a 50-50 shot being in a Toyota 4Runner commercial. We didn't get there. We didn't get the commercial. But we made it to the short list of, by virtue of all that press that I got driving the 4Runner. Uh, The 4Runner, which, which, by the way, that 4Runner saved my life years later because I fell asleep at the wheel coming back from a gig in Orange County driving back to San Diego on five. Going 65 miles an hour, I fell asleep at the wheel and rolled it twice. And that old 4Runner was one of those with a roll bar in the back. And the roll bars would save my my bacon because if it hadn't have been there, the cab would have been crushed and I would have been killed. So, I'm a big fan of the the old Toyota 4Runner. But anyway,
0: how long? Um, if I could, Frank, um, how long did you perform in the clubs? Two thousand six hundred and
1: twenty nine nights in a row. Seven so, years in change.
0: So, and now that's you said seven years. Seven years in change. And then what prompted you to, you left, you left the club scene, and what prompted you to do that?
1: Yeah, I did. I, um, and I, had, I was booked a year ahead at that moment. I had a year's worth of bookings. And uh, I got the bookings because, you know, a lot of comics during the daytime get stoned and watch the Golf Channel. <clears throat> and I was on the phone. This is before cell phones. I was on the phone, you know, um, constantly getting, you know, getting bookings. And you know how you used, we used to do, if you're going through a town like Lubbock and they got a comedy club, you you know, you call ahead and see, you can do a guest set. So that's right. how I got mine. And I was booked a year ahead. Uh, and I got a phone call from WRD 106 in Raleigh. Been there many times when I was working good nights. Always said to them as I'm going through, hey, look, if you guys ever need a morning guy, give me a call. Well, show called Reynolds and Silva. Great morning show, number one in the market. And the Reynolds couldn't come to contract, you know, agreement with the station, and so I got a call from Phil Zachary, the general manager, who said, Do "You want to uh, interview for the job as a morning guy?" I said, "Sure." So I went and interviewed. You know, it's Raleigh, it's my hometown. I come back, great way to come back to town. Get a get a gig on the number one morning show. And they asked me during the interview because I had a year booked ahead. So I didn't, you know, I'm like, I got ball, I, you know, I mean, I've got amazing testicular fortitude at this point (laughs) because I got a year booked ahead. What I didn't know was the comedy club thing was about to take a dive. It was about to seek a lower plateau, but I didn't know that. About what year? 95. 93. Um, 93, okay. 93. So anyway, I went in and they said, look, do you take direction well? And I said, you know, I do stand-up comedy because I don't take direction well. And they hired me. And 18 months later, they fired me. And the reason is, basically... You don't take direction well. I said, well, I told you that. So uh, I took a number one morning show and I drove it to number six in 18 months. Uh, And somebody said, you didn't just drive it into the ground. You drove it into Middle Earth, which I did. Um, but, But the other guy, the guy that had been the second banana who became the first banana, they kept him because he had equity in the market. Big mistake. It would have been better to keep me and can him because he was hard to get along with on the air. Great guy off the air, but just the pain in the wazoo off on the air. So, and I'm still friends with the guy who fired me. Matter of fact, he hired me 20 years later to do something else with another radio group. He called me up, he goes, Frank, I got a job for you. And I said, Phil, we've been down this road before. He goes, no, another job, different job. So from which I got fired as well, but not by him. Anyway, I did a year and a half of radio. And then Phil, the manager said to me, general manager, well, you can go back on the road, do stand up. And I said, Phil, the road ain't what the road was when I started eighteen months ago. They were closing comedy clubs faster than they were opening. Yeah. So having been a clean comic all that time, which cost me in the one nighters. I mean, uh, some of those beer bar pool hall and honky tonk one nighters, guys screaming, "Tell us some jokes we can dance to." Um, yeah, doing the doing the squeaky clean in the in the uh, the bar scene is not. Uh, that's a
0: challenge. That's not easy.
1: No, I had to pass out a syllabus practically when I got on stage. You know, okay, look, um, I, uh, Saddam Hussein is the president of Iraq. Okay, <laughs> otherwise they're not going to get the joke. So uh, more than once I said, I know you're probably wondering about my outfit. It's called a sport jacket and a ton. So <clears throat> anyway, been clean. Thought I'll do the rubber chicken circuit. Be a corporate comic. Well, in those bar scene places, you have to double
0: double the information in your premises and your setups
1: yes uh brian whalen used to say set up punchline explanation set up punchline explanation <laughs> so uh i made a jump from the bar room to the board room from club comedy to corporate comedy i joined the nsa national speaker association carolinas chapter so i could learn the business and i started doing 25 minutes for every rotary and kiwanis and whatever club community service club in the Wake County where Raleigh was to practice my corporate comedy. <clears throat> and I got my first gig in Cleveland, open it up. It was some kind of annual television show, high school, like a high school Jeopardy thing for a Catholic high school or Catholic high schools. And it was an awards banquet. And I'm in the Marriott in Cleveland and they paid my travel, they paid me 1500 bucks I'm at the Marriott, I'm in the elevator, there's a bellman taking my bags upstairs, I'm getting ready to order room service, which they're gonna pay for. And I, I said to the bellman, forget comedy clubs. And he goes, yes, sir, forget comedy clubs. <laughs> so that's when I decided I'm not doing clubs anymore. And I've done a few since then, but I I just, yeah. I, I, Were you
0: using a forget in the sense of uh, forget like no longer remember or forget as in the original meaning of it. Cause a lot of people don't know that
1: the forget means what
0: forget actually meant.
1: If you know what I'm saying? Well, I actually said another F word to him and he repeated the F word to me, but this is a family show. So we can't say that. Right. Um, so that's, yeah, I made, mean, I mean, I've done a couple clubs since then, but I just, I mean, if I, and I've got people my age, friends of mine who still do, you know, they're in the 60s still doing comedy clubs and it's tough road. To hoe. it's, because it's a young man's business, young woman's business. It's, and the thing that, that, the reasons they won't book you as an old person for comedy clubs are the very reasons they book you as a speaker for the gray hair and the stories and the knowledge and the wisdom. And I've tried to convince comics to do it. Um, I must have gotten 35 or six phone calls over the years, comics want to do corporate. Want to make the big money. Problem is, and I've said this many times, Nobody goes into comedy because they have a, a fabulous work ethic. So um, nobody, maybe one person so far has gotten any traction as a corporate comedian that has called me and asked, asked for advice. I, I got to where I would just say, look, read Judy Carter's book, The Message of You, How to Turn Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. And when you're done, call me back. So that was the price of admission. Be happy to help you, but you got to. And I think one guy has read it all the way through and he's still struggling to make the transition. Uh, Vince Morris, comic. Is he the one? Uh, no, uh, Miguel Washington, another comic out of Atlanta, another African-American comic. He read the book. He did all the ex- exercises, And but he's still struggling to make that jump. I'm thinking he's probably he works cruises mostly, which means he's not working. So he may be thinking more seriously about doing the corporate thing now that the CDC has had said cruise boats can't sail for a year. Not a year, I'm sorry, 100 days. Anyway, not one comic that I can think of has ever made the transition with my help to corporate. I mean, there are comics who made the transition, but they did, they've did. they done it on their own. They didn't contact me looking to, looking to uh, be a corporate. They want to make the corporate money, but don't want to put the work into developing e- either A, clean comedy, 45 minutes, or B, uh, a keynote, a funny keynote, so. Well, th- with that
0: said, um, would you say that you had to go through a process you took from a, a club comedian, which it's interesting to, to me because some people that Some people acted like that term club comedia was, a, was almost radioactive or negative, right? The club comic was somehow lesser than. But truth is, uh, club comics were wonderful, in my opinion. They were the best, some of the best comedians.
1: Yes, but the word comedian makes HR people nervous. So, and, and it can't just be club clean comedy. It's got to be HR friendly.
0: HR friendly comedy.
1: Yeah, no, no politics, no religion, nothing racial, nothing sexual.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. And so the um, I got hired oftentimes because the speakers bureaus, because they were a big deal back then, they knew that they could count on me to keep it clean. Regardless. So and that I was making good money until the recession. I was making on average five thousand dollars for forty five minutes. And meeting planners will say to me, We're paying you how much for 45 minutes of just jokes? And I go, No. You're paying me for seven years of beer bars and pool halls and hogs tonks. Basically, you're paying me so that when I get done with my job, you still have a job. You know, you're paying me for the jokes I don't tell and the wisdom to know the difference. And then in oh seven, when the recession started, by oh nine, the business had dropped off 80%. And my wife and I lost everything in the Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And that's when I knew. That's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Because I had a million-dollar life insurance policy. My guess is it's not minty. <laughs> no. No, they don't make mint gun oil. Uh, <laughs> probably for a good reason. Uh, anyway, Would had a million dollars.
0: Between Listerine and messing. <laughs> and
1: yeah. Uh, I, they're three-legged. The suicidal ideation has a three is a three-legged stool. Leg 1 is social distancing, social isolation. Leg 2 is you've crossed the barrier where you've agreed with yourself that you're willing to kill yourself. And number 3 is a sense of burdensomeness. The world would be better off without me. Well. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: And I had a million dollar life insurance policy. So my wife would literally I was worth more dead than alive. She'd be broken hearted, but she wouldn't be broke. She could keep the farm and Pay all the bills and, you know, her life would go on. So I was going to, I had time, place, method and was going to shoot myself. And she would get the money. Well, now. Uh, Spoiler alert. I didn't pull the trigger.
0: Right. Obviously. Yeah. You branded yourself more than once. So you had to rebrand yourself well, you had to brand yourself originally as a comedian. Yep. Rebrand you yourself as someone who was no longer a, just a club comic, but rather someone who was doing corporate comedy. Yep. A keynote speaker who does humor and comedy. And now you are looking at rebranding yourself again. Yes. As a no. mental health
1: comedian. Well, yeah, but I didn't start out as a mental health comedian. That came later. I mean, the topic came earlier. All my comedy career, having, having grown up in the insurance business right after college, six years selling insurance, I saw all the great motivational speakers of the time, the Zig Ziglars the Brian Tracy's and those guys. And Tony Alessandro. And I watched him and I thought, I could do that. I'd like to do that, but I have nothing to teach anybody. I have no idea what I would, I mean, I can be funny, but I really don't have anything to teach anybody. And so after my near- my brush was suicide. And and after the recession, the meeting planner said, Frank, look, you're funny, we love you, but you gotta teach our audience something. We can't pay that kind of money for just jokes. And so I bought Judy Carter's book, The Message of You, How to Turn Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. I went into the book thinking, I have nothing to tell anybody, teach anybody. I have no takeaways, no learning objectives. But halfway through, I thought, whoa, yes I do. I can speak on mental health suicide prevention because it runs in my family. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I'll spare you the details, but it's in my first TED talk. And so by the time I finished Judy's book, I realized I did have something to talk about. And by then I had applied for my first TEDx. I had no idea what TED was, but I got an opportunity to apply for TEDx through something called SpeakerMatch.com. I said to Wendy, should I apply? She goes, yeah, apply. So I applied for the TED talk and I got it. And then I took the Judy's book and designed the TED talk, 18 minutes, bought a book called Talk Like Ted, which has nine things that should be in every great TED talk. So I redesigned the speech that way and went up and did my first TED talk in uh, British Columbia. I they, they called me and said, Frank, We have good news and bad news. Good news is we'd like you to be in our TED talk. Bad news is when you applied, you saw Vancouver, TEDx Vancouver. We think, you think that's Vancouver, Washington, which is two hours from where you live. It's Vancouver, BC, which is seven hours from where you live. (laughs) So I'm the only person who actually flew in for the TEDx. I, I flew for the audition and I flew back for the actual TEDx in Vancouver, B.C. And then that TED Talk got me two more. People found me online, liked liked the TED Talk, asked if I had any other mental health TEDx ideas, which I did. So the next two I did, I got, you know, I didn't have to audition. They just called and said, do you want to do it? And the fourth one I had to audition, you know, do the, uh, actually didn't have to audition. I just sent the idea in. And the sixth one I sent it to said, we want you to do it. And the fifth one took me about, Fourteen or fifteen tries, different teams, different different TEDx's before somebody bit. So,
0: well, if I could, Frank, I would like to help uh, increase your numbers of success with the other guys that you've spoken to, including myself, about the books that you recommended. Okay, I want you to take a look here. I don't know if you can see it. Can you see right there?
1: Yeah. The book is The Message of You by Judy Carter. Got this an old oh, geez, oh peace. So you're doing the exercises.
0: I certainly am.
1: Attaboy. And then you would be the first doc. <laughs> you would be. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you 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 made the transition to speaker years ago. We're number one. You you became a speaker years ago. You you did it on your own. You went from comic to uh, actually you went from rock and roll band or whatever it was, to comic, to, uh,
0: well, I was in school for theater. I went to Virginia tech. And, uh, and when I went to Virginia tech, that first year was a year of not knowing what I was going to major in and just sort of taking classes and figuring out what I wanted to do. And then it was that second year, uh, that I decided that I, I wanted to try my hand at theater. And there was an open, uh, like an open mic, night but it was for theater it was an open call audition for um a stage production that was being done in the theater department and um that you know it's interesting have you had this experience where it's almost better that you didn't know more because if you did you wouldn't have done it
1: oh i thought about putting a keynote together called what could you do if you didn't know no better Right. If I'd known how you know, hard comedy was when I started, that's, I probably wouldn't have started.
0: That's true of stand-up comedy because uh, I thought I really want to do stand-up comedy. And the same thing when I, was, uh, when I went out for this audition for this, uh, this theatrical production, which was a, it was a production of um, William Inge's uh, play. And uh, he wrote Bus Stop and Picnic, and he was a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright. I'd never heard of them before. And at that time I was 18 years old and uh, I thought, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and do it. I mean, uh, you know, Larry Bird was in the NBA by being a walk on, <laughs> uh, you know, the level of reasoning that I had at 18 years old. Sure. And they, they brought us in and said, here, learn this, learn this monologue, learn this side. And then um, they sent you out of the room and the, the director and the uh, the the director, the two directors actually for the show were there, and um, I came back in and I did it. I did the the monologue. I memorized it, and uh, then they said, "Thank you very much, and if you will just uh, uh, hang around, wait outside, and we'll we'll call you back later on when we need you." And so they called me back later on, and um, um, they said, "Congratulations, you have the lead in the production." Dear God. Well, so, yeah, I got a walk was a walk-on and uh, wasn't even a major. Ended up getting the lead in this production, which was pretty nice. And then um, after several years, that's when I did. Uh, I decided I want to do my hand at stand-up comedy, and um, I I had no idea. I spent uh, you weren't supposed to talk about feminine hygiene products on stage as a comedian, and uh, that was one of those verboten topics because if you were, you were immediately you were labeled a, a, a hack or something like that. And unfortunately, I didn't really know any better. So my first, first bit that I ever wrote out word for word and memorized verbatim, which was probably five minutes long, was on feminine hygiene products. Uh, but I, And I did it on stage. And uh, I, um, I died a horrible death. <laughs> Violence, flaming death. And uh, nobody laughed. And I got off stage and that's one of those moments in my life where I realized I can do this as a, as a career. I didn't know, like you said, I didn't know how it was going to happen. I just knew it somehow inside. I knew it was possible. So you, you, to get back to what you were saying before um, you become this, you rebrand yourself and you are a mental health comedian um, and speaker. Um, How, how do all of these, you, you got these TED Talks, right? Yeah. yeah. TED Talks. How do they all fit together? Like uh, the suicidality that you talked about and other mental health challenges like depression and humor. How do they really all go together and fit together in your mind?
1: Well, TED Talk number four is called Suicide the Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. I was looking at, I was on the, I was on Google for some reason, and I saw an article about entrepreneurs and suicide and depression, and it said several studies, actually, a third of entrepreneurs are depressed and suicidal, and I thought back to when I became a comedian, and I was married to my first wife, miserable, although she's a wonderful woman, selling insurance, miserable, uh, although it's a great business. And I realized that I was gonna kill myself if I didn't do something different. If I didn't pursue, and I wasn't going to open mic nights because that did not make my wife happy. And I realized if I didn't do something different, I was gonna kill myself sooner rather than later. And my second thought was, well, what, what have I got to lose? I can divorce my wife, quit my job. I can try stand up comedy. If it works out great, and I think it will, if it doesn't work out, hell, I can still kill myself. So that's why suicide is the secret of my success. And I think that entrepreneurs, the clinicians determine entrepreneurs are depressed and suicidal because of long hours, little sleep, and unmet expectations, basically. I think that's probably true for a lot of them. But I bet you, and I've met a number. You know, it almost sounds like a day job. <laughs> yeah. Long hours, <laughs> little sleep. Unmet expectations. Expectations. I think a slice of those third are not depressed and suicidal because they are entrepreneurs. I believe they're entrepreneurs because they were depressed and suicidal and living a life they knew was not what they were supposed to be doing, became suicidal and thought, you know, I'm going to kill myself something doesn't change. And they made the jump. They they decided to pursue whatever it was their dream was, figuring, you know, if it works out great if it doesn't. Um I can still kill myself. There's a comedian you you and I both know who shall remain nameless <clears throat> who called me up and said, do you want to know how I got into comedy? I said, sure. And the comedian said, it's kind of a dark story. I said, well, tell me. I love dark stories. And the comedian said, well, I'm doing this job. It's a good job, but I hated it. My only joy was a couple nights a week at did open mics. I thought, that's where I thought I knew I belonged. And And then I... I was I was suicidal. I thought if I keep doing this job, I'm gonna kill myself. And then, and I said, Let me finish the story. And then you realized, well, wait a minute, what have I got to lose? I can quit my job, try stand-up comedy. If it works, great. If not, I can still kill myself. And the comedian said, How do you know that? Know that I lived it. And I met several entrepreneurs, same, same story. I believe Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain. Kate Spade was the editor of the accessories department at Vanity Fair magazine, a great job. But my guess is she said to herself, I'm not supposed to be reviewing other people's fashions. I am supposed to be creating fashions. So maybe she was, and she had mental illness, untreated except for drugs and alcohol. Maybe she said to herself, look, I need, I need to jump.
0: Yeah, I don't, I'm not uh, fully, fully versed in her story, but do you mean, you say other than drugs and alcohol, was she, did she have an issue with drugs
1: and alcohol prior? No, just uh, she was mentally ill and she was self-medicating,
0: self-medicating with with alcohol and drugs.
1: Yeah. And so she 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 formed her own fashion line, very successful, ended up selling it for a number of million dollars, formed another fashion line and then and then eventually died by suicide. And Anthony Bourdain was at Vassar doing very well, but he loved culinary. His folks took him to France when he was eight years old and he fell in love with food. So all through high school, he worked in restaurants. All through college, he worked in a couple of restaurants. My guess is some point in Vassar, he thought, you know, this is a good major. I'll probably get a good job, but I belong in culinary. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to kill myself if I don't do something different. And so, I'm, um, you know, I'm going to go to the Culinary Institute or whatever it was. And if it works out great, if it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. So I'm just, it's just supposition, but I believe that's probably what happened. Uh, so suicide is the secret of my success. It is, it is, it remains my superpower in that for me and people like me, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. And when I say large and small, my car broke down a couple of years ago, I had three thoughts unbidden, get it fixed, buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. So the fact that I'm willing to kill myself at any moment, you know, sitting in the exit row by the window seat, in the window seat on a plane, ready to pop the door open and go anytime keeps me alive because I know if the pain gets too bad, I'm out of here. So ironically, my suicidal ideation keeps me alive.
0: But do you have, do you have a sense of the, of death as being, um, being, what is this, your sense of, of death? Because we all have a, uh, we all have a, what, an internal representation of death. For you, is it something that's frightening? Is it uh, is it uh, an endpoint, like meaning no afterlife? Is, is it what is your representation or your belief around death?
1: I don't believe there's an afterlife. I don't believe in heaven or hell. I'm an atheist. Um, I, I believe that that's all. Uh, it's, it's mythology at best, or it's historical fiction at best, mythology at worst. I'm fascinated by people who, in 2020, still believe in sky wizards.
0: <laughs> <That's>...
1: <laughs> I just, yeah, I, I've got no patience for that. You know, it, uh, people say, I'll pray for you. and I'll, I'll sin for you. Um, I, I'm not, I don't fear death. Um, somebody, so I when, I, when I did my little trip to, from, back from Cambodia and became an international pariah because the world thought I'd dragged a virus back from the Western Pacific to the U.S. I got, you know, phone calls, people were going to come after me. The last time I got, the guy said, um, he was t- telling me, you know, what a horrible human being I was, and I said, "Look, do me a favor. I'll be at the Pursuit Fitness gym this afternoon at three. Why don't you come tell me that to my face?" I said, "But know this before you come. Um, I I don't want to die, but I'm not scared to die." And he hung up. Um, death for me is is the end of pain. People often ask me. Why does so-and-so want to kill himself? Chances are he didn't want to kill himself. Chances are he just wanted to end the pain. Now, if you are a school principal and you've been playing slap and tickle with little girls and little boys, and you get busted and they come out of the woodwork and you're going to go to federal prison to be in general pop in Atlanta and have a short eyes ticket at the bottom of the food chain, you know, and and your dance card is going to be full for the rest of your life, then that's, you know, that's a different story you're just killing yourself because it's not going to get any better. You know, it's not, it's not the current pain. It's the pain you're about to experience.
0: Well, well, Frank, so you are, now you say that you are atheist and um, I'm curious, there are some atheists out there who, one of the interesting things about living in America is that we have this free speech and you're able to, uh, but at the same time, we have freedom of religion or, uh, you know, not practicing religion, that kind of thing. Yeah. There are atheists who, who, will go on the attack uh, against anyone who is religious and that kind of thing. But you don't, you're not like that, are you? I mean, you don't strike me as if it it works for you, it works for you kind of thing, but it's not for
1: me. Yeah, Seth Seth Godin said um, uh, recently in a podcast, religion is a placebo. However, keep in mind, for people who believe strongly enough in whatever the placebo happens to be, it works. So if it works for you, you know, I, I'm still fascinated. Anybody, it seems a little medieval to me that you believe in, you know, in this omniscient, omnipresent, you know, the Bible is the word of God. I just have trouble. I have trouble with the Bible. I mean, if God knew everything, how come in the Bible, it doesn't say, Oh, by the way, the earth is round and it circles the sun, not the other way around. And, and here's a little practical piece of advice. When you dig the hole, for the outhouse, put it below the water source, not above, because <laughs> that could have prevented all sorts of waterborne diseases. So there's really no practical information that somebody was some, some creature that was omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent would know. Plus, it's, it's horribly misogynistic. You know, the world was flooded. No, the world's not flooded. Probably where Noah lived, there was a big flood, but the Every religion, as I understand it, every religion of the world has a flood story, end of the world story, you know, to clean out all the evil people. So and hell, hell in the Middle East is a hot place. Hell in the Scandinavian countries is a very cold place. So it's obviously, uh, you know, God didn't make man in his image. Man made God in his image. So I, I just find it fascinating people in 2020 believe all that hoo-ha. But hey, it works for you. you know, it gets you through the night. More power to you.
0: Okay, well, now you are—we've—we've we've gotten to this place now where you're a you're a speaker, um, and you're a mental health speaker and comedian, and you're giving your TED talks. And what has that led to? Now you are—are are you? What else do you do? Do you you, do you work with other people and help them to become a speaker now, or are you giving back?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I coach speakers, I coach TEDx, um, and I give back. I believe when I do my Suicide prevention keynote. The thing about suicide prevention, I discovered when I was putting my first TED talk together was, nobody talks about suicide, even though one person in the U.S. dies every 11 minutes. I mean, at this point, when you are talking, over 60,000 people have died of COVID, of the flu, of the virus. But I mean, 47,000 die every year of suicide. Where's the big push? So... What I also discovered was the mere mention of the words depression and suicide out loud elicited the most amazing stories from people, some of whom I've just met. Almost everybody has a story of themselves, their loved ones, a friend, a college roommate. When I speak, I do a QA and a at the end for everybody. And then I say, look, I'll hang out if anybody's got any individual questions you don't want to ask in front of the entire group. Like, I'm crazy. Can you help me? And there's usually one, sometimes six or eight people lined up with questions. And some of them have chronic suicidal ideation and they didn't know it had a name. They just thought they were some kind of freak. And they, they're terribly relieved to know they're not alone. At Some point I realized I'm sort of like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life in that I've been shown what people's lives would be like if I weren't there to speak and let them know they're not alone. And my second thought was I can't kill myself now because if I did, I'd take all those people with me. So I'm stuck. Well, now
0: you um, you've done these TEDx talks, and you're coaching folks <coughs> in, for speaking and coaching them to help them become TEDx speakers. Yeah, that's taking what you what you didn't know, learning it, knowing it, and then teaching it. Which oftentimes we've been I've learned that that's sort of giving back, and that's the the final step in in making sure that you really know something is teaching it to somebody. Yeah. There's something that happened to you um, uh, when you were on the cruise boat, a cruise not all that long ago. And that is that um, you, well, you kind of made international news. <laughs> kind of?
1: Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I was in the Western Pacific on the Wester Dam, Holland America, at the same time that the Diamond Princess was not far away. And the Diamond Princess sailed from Hong Kong same day we did, although they let people on the Diamond Princess from mainland China. So on our ship, all 2,500 of us, pastors, crew, staff, whatever, tested negative. On the Diamond Princess, they had hundreds of people that tested positive because they allowed people from mainland China to join the ship. So I came back from that area of the world on my own, And I was cleared by the CDC in Cambodia, the U.S. CDC, to come back. I cleared Seattle CDC to come into the country, no restrictions. Made the mistake of talking to the media. Told my story. And, of course, the way you get eyeballs and clicks is by being sensational. So even though I was never quarantined, nor was anybody on my ship, every story about me, comedian slips quarantine. So I became an international pariah for supposedly dragging the COVID 19 back to the US and infecting everybody. I still get the occasional phone call, you know, 60,000 people have died in the US. Are you happy now? So it was a, I'd change my phone number, deactivate three social media accounts and deal with the death threats for a couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, actually, you actually had death threats.
1: Yeah, we're going to kill you. A friend of mine said you should get the virus and and recover. That'll really upset them. Um, I tested, in Cambodia before I left, they they took the nasal and the throat swab, and you know not too long after that I got the results. I was negative. I didn't drag the virus back here, but you can't convince anybody. I can't convince anybody I was on the ship that had no coronavirus. Now, there was an article today in the New York Times about the Diamond Princess and how all the mistakes that Carnival made with that ship by allowing people on from mainland China, but. And I understand. People confuse the two, sh- you know, they conflated the two ships because they were very close geographically. Same area of the world coming back from basically ground zero of the virus. So I'm, I became patient zero for a lot of people.
0: Wow. It's my so you neighbors, were, you know. and You were maligned and you were, and yet at the same time you were um, innocent in the sense that you, um, you were not a, uh, a carrier.
1: No, and I um, pitched TED Talk to TEDx Spokane. I got an audition. TEDx was called Going Viral, How the um, Cancel Culture and the Coronavirus Killed My Comedy Career. Because Hall in America said, we're not going to hire you back. Uh, Somebody wrote me and said, we're going to make sure you never work in another comedy club again. And I wrote back, can I get that in writing? Because I have no desire to work at comedy club. Interesting. Wow.
0: So, Frank, I'm curious um one thing that obviously that you are is resilient
1: yeah
0: <laughs> for someone who is uh self described as having chronic suicidality yep. and to speak with you and uh, do you, uh, how old are you uh, now chronologically
1: 63
0: So to make it to year 63 with chronic suicidality is uh i'm sure by many people is quite a feat and, yeah time of uh, resilience and the ability to bounce back. So given what you just said with um, the the cruise ship and uh, the kind of maligning of your character and whatnot that happened, my guess is that you will uh, definitely bounce back if you have not already bounced back. You're already quite successful. What is it that's in store for the future for you? And um, what is it that, uh, because I'm noticing that we're coming up to the, the top of the the new hour and what is it that is coming up for you the future and what is it that you haven't shared so far today and i want to thank you for being on the show that you'd like to make sure people know about you or for themselves for their own benefit
1: um resilience the air force has uh, operation resilience because they've lost they, last year they lost a record number of airmen to suicide. So they're teaching resilience, which is a mistake, uh, because the people I know who have the most resilience are the mentally ill and suicidal. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. You can teach neuronormal people resilience. That's a good idea. But you should. <laughs> I've been asked many times in this pandemic how to survive social isolation, social distancing, and so forth. And I've been. I just. I teach people what mentally ill people know. You have to have a self-care plan. You have to have a routine. You, have to have, you know, you practice gamification. All the, all the skills that allow me to be resilient. So the Air Force, is, is, their heart's in the right place, but they're wasting their money trying to teach mentally ill people resilience because, as again, my mentally ill friends, <laughs> they wouldn't be as old as they are if they weren't resilient.
0: Well, it's, it's one of those things, at least it seems to me, that when someone gets a diagnosis of mental illness, um, there are things that they are challenged with, within and without, every day. Yes, and if they are not able to uh, overcome those challenges on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis, uh, what happens is that they're no longer around.
1: Yeah, it's like being Sisyphus, the character in Greek mythology, who was yes. sentenced to roll a rock up a hill every day for giving fire to man. When you wake up every morning with mental illness, it's a rock in the hill. Some days the rock is small and the hill's not so steep some days the rock is a boulder and the hill is everest but every day without fail there's a rock and a hill and the day comes for a lot of us when you can't move it and that's you know that's the end so what
0: is uh you you said you've got some do you have uh future plans that you'd like to share
1: here well i just hope to get back to speaking at some point live in front of a real audience Uh, although i believe. Virtual keynotes will become more popular thanks to the pandemic. People realize you can do that. Yeah, I'd like to get back to speaking.
0: And um, are you have you have you already taken action in that direction to? I mean, like deal with virtual speaking,
1: virtual keynoting. Yeah, booked I booked a virtual keynote for June. Believe it or not, uh, on suicide prevention, hour and a half for a group of mental health professionals, nurses, doctors, for which they will get continuing education credit. Uh, it's actually in Nebraska and Southern South Dakota. So slowly but surely.
0: Frank, one one last thing. Uh, again, I want to thank you for being on today. and And that is this, for anyone who listens to this program, if you had something to share that you haven't shared about suicide for someone who might be uh, I don't use the word entertaining suicide. I use the word considering or who is suicidal. What, what would you like to say to them?
1: If you're suicidal, call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline or text the Suicide Prevention Text Line at seven four one seven four one. If you're mentally ill and just having a really bad day, call a crazy person because we're not going to judge. We're not going to shoot all over you. You should do this and you should do that and you should try fish oil. We're just going to listen.
0: listening a very 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 powerful thing and frank um i want to tell you again for the third time thank you because i have enjoyed listening to you today and um i look forward to us having another conversation and seeing about going even to deeper uh realms with this conversation and the topics that we've been discussing today about humor and suicide prevention yep uh, that is our show for today our guest today is my longtime friend, Mr. Frank King. You can uh, find Frank on the web, uh, Frank King, mental health comedian, mental health speaker. And you have been listening to Radio Fairfax with Fairfax Public Access. My name is Robert Doc Barm, and this is the Robert Doc Barham Show. Thank you all. And we will talk again soon.